0: Chapter 5, for our study this morning, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the fact that you love us and you extend grace and forgiveness and transformation in our lives Thank you for what you did Wednesday night, and we pray for those that responded to the gospel, made decisions to follow you. Would you encourage them and bless them? Lord, we think of these kids that will receive these boxes in the weeks and months to come. Lord, as they receive the gift, may their hearts be open to the gospel. May the power of the gospel touch their hearts. We pray for the hands and the feet that will deliver the boxes, the missionaries, the churches. Lord, we just ask that you would do great things. As we read your word this morning, Father, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, we know that you're here with us, and so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So three guys headed out for a hunting trip. It was a pastor, a doctor, and a lawyer, okay? So here they are, hunting buddies, and they see this huge buck, and they shoot the buck, and they all three shoot at the same time. But when they get up to the buck, they find that only one of them was successful. One of them hit the, this, this buck. So, of course, there's this argument, well, who shot the winning shot? Who, who was the one that had good aim? So they're going back and forth and going back and forth. And the argument gets pretty lively. I mean, you can imagine a doctor a lawyer a pastor so here comes the authorities you know the game warden to sort this out and try to figure out who's going to take home the meat he looks at the dead deer at the corpse and is examining and very quickly he says oh it was the pastor the pastor the one who shot the the kill shot and they're like how do you know how do you know that and he says well it's very easy the bullet went in one ear and out the other (laughs) some of you don't know why that's funny and you're gonna be thinking about it the rest of the day also this young boy he was talking with his pastor in the foyer after the service and he says you know what Um, I'm gonna give you some money when I get older and the pastor's like okay thanks but can I ask you why and he's like yeah because my dad says you're one of the poorest preachers we've ever had (laughs) oh that was a groaner that was like oh that hurt this morning Well, you may have guessed it by this point, but we're going to talk about pastors and elders inside of the Church of God uh, this morning. I've titled this message, Let's Talk, because Peter, as he ends this epistle... He really takes the posture of saying, hey, let's, let's sit down and let's talk. Maybe you've had a few of those conversations uh, in your life where someone has challenged you and they said, hey, let's sit down and let's talk. And first, it's to the elders and the pastors. So if you're taking notes, the first four verses is an exhortation to elders. And then from verse 5 through verse 9, we see an exhortation that's given to all, to all believers and then in verse 10 and 11, it's the actions of God. And I love the balance of God's word because after God exhorts us, he also shows us his grace that's poured into our lives. So, verse 10 and 11 is the actions of God. And then the epistle ends with a farewell from Peter from verse 12 to verse 14. So, verse 1 The elders who are among you, I exhort. So, this was written to churches in Asia Minor and Turkey that were going through persecution. And he says, to this group of elders, I want to exhort you. I want to call you to my side, and I want to remind you of these things. And for all elders and pastors that serve in church leadership... These things are good reminders, and we can lose track of what are the priorities of God, what's important to God, and how his people should be led. And these things bring us back to what is important and cause us to not lose focus. You may be wondering, how is this connected with the rest of 1 Peter? Some, as they write commentaries on 1 Peter, have a hard time connecting chapter 5 with the rest of the book. It almost seems to be a change of thought. But you remember at the end of chapter 4, last week, we read that judgment starts where? It starts in the house of God. So if judgment's going to start in the house of God, then who's first up in that judgment? Of course it would be the elders. Of course it would be the, the pastor's. If we're going to get frustrated, you know, it's not to be with an unbelieving world. It's to allow God to work and cleanse his house. He wants to do a work amongst spiritual leaders. So the leaders are being exhorted. And Peter says, I whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. I love how Peter introduces himself. He says, I'm a fellow elder. He doesn't say, uh, well, Pope Peter, you know, he's writing you and saying, "Uh, here, you better get your act straight. He doesn't say, here's my resume. You know, here's all the things that I've done for God my first sermon, 3,000 people got saved in the book of Acts. Uh, Listen up, guys. You know, and sometimes that's the tone of Christian leaders, right? You read the back of their book, and they introduce themselves, and it's of all the great things that God has allowed them to do. And Peter doesn't do that. He's just like, hey, I'm a fellow elder, so I'm with you on this Guys, I'm not above you. I'm not beneath you. We're laboring together to serve in God's kingdom. Then he also describes his own relationship with the Lord, where he says, I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ. And you remember, Peter wasn't in a good state when Jesus died on the cross for his sins. Peter had denied the Lord, said that he never knew the Lord. How much did the sufferings of Christ mean to Peter in his grace and his forgiveness? And he's saying, I witnessed his suffering, and I also have this hope of partaking in his glory. Peter has a greater reference to God's glory because of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were called up with Christ to the mountain. Jesus' glory was seen and revealed. And Peter says, I'm looking forward to this glory and being able to partake in it. Every pastor and elder is only as good as their relationship with the Lord, is only as good as they're experiencing the sufferings of Jesus Christ as they look forward to the glory of God. And pastors do get burnt out and get off track when we lose sight of our relationship with the Lord, where we get so busy doing the work of the Lord that we're not worshiping God, spending time in prayer, spending time in God's word for ourselves, not to prepare a study, but to allow the Lord to minister to us devotionally. And Peter's referencing his relationship with Christ. So what's the role of an elder? What's the role of a pastor in a church? shepherd the flock of God. That's what the elders are to do together. And God makes it very clear it's God's flock, God's people, God's church, God's bride. No human is to take ownership of God's church. It's his flock. They're simply to shepherd, to care for, to tend the flock of God. So what would be the job of a shepherd? Something that they're very familiar with as Peter's writing this a shepherd's first job is to make sure that the sheep eat, right? Uh, that's, that's the job. That's what they've got to do. And so he reminds these shepherds is, is, I want you to make sure that you're feeding the people of God, the Word of God. Now, many of you have chosen this is your church home. You're committed. God has called you here. Some of you may be in that process where you're praying through, does the Lord want me to be at, at Rocky Mountain Calvary? Over the course of your lifetime, you may end up moving cities and you'll find yourself having to pick a church. You know, how do you choose a church and where God wants you to be? And a lot of things come into our minds, but it's not the children's ministry. It's not the worship. It's not how good's the espresso bar in their cafe or those kinds of things. But what you want to look for first and foremost Not that children's ministry is not important. Not that worship's not important. But is the word of God being taught? And do you leave there feeling fed? Do you leave there going, we've spent time in the word of God? Do you hear words like, open your Bibles? Are you getting man's opinions? Are you getting the personality of a man? Or are you getting into the word of God and being fed with the word of God and challenged with the word of God? A pastor's job is not to entertain you. A pastor's job is not to tickle your ears. A pastor's job is to give you the Word of God. I think there will be a revival inside of the United States of America as the pulpits of America are filled with the Word of God. And there's many different styles and there's many different ways to teach the Word of God. And God raises those up to reach different people. But first and foremost, a shepherd is to feed. But a shepherd is also to protect and to tend, to serve to look out for false teaching, look out for wolves that will come into the family of God and protect the people of God. Also to be there in times of suffering, offer prayer, to minister in the hospital, to minister at at funerals. And I want you to know here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, if if you need biblical counsel, we're not professional counselors and the pastors do some counseling as, as well as leaders within our fellowship, but it is free, it is absolutely free To anybody who calls that wants biblical counsel, if you want to sit down with someone one-on-one and say, I need to know what God's word has to say in this area of my life. I I want to see what God would have to say about marriage or raising kids or how do I deal with this drug addiction that I'm battling. There is a ministry here that goes beyond the the pulpit ministry and you can call in the church office and and meet with someone for that. I hope you know as you lose a loved one, they may not even go to the church here, that we offer the service of being able to do funerals. We never turn people away for funerals. We don't charge for funerals. It's a time to be able to minister to people. We don't do it perfectly. I'm not going to get up here and say that we do it perfectly. But I do want you to know, especially if you're new to the church, that that's available to you, that you can sit down and get godly counsel, that you can have someone come visit you if you're, you're in the hospital. You know, we'll never know if you're in the hospital if you don't call and say, hey, I got, I'm in the hospital here. I would love a visit. You know. So that's the heart of a shepherd. That's what shepherds need to be doing is tending and caring for and loving the flock of God goes on and says, which is among you? And I think this is important. A shepherd's just among God's people. A shepherd's not above God's people. Uh, A shepherd's a part of the body, not the most important part of the body. And so Peter says, focus on those people who are among you, the, the people that the Lord has placed in your life. The second thing that an elder is to do is to serve as an overseer. This word overseer needs to look upon, inspect, to look after. So a pastor, an elder is accountable before the Lord, which is a sobering thing to know what's going on in children's ministry, what's going on in women's ministry and and youth ministry and all of these different kinds of things. And, And so that's part of being an overseer. But notice what it says. It says to serve As an overseer. So it's not one of authority. It's not bossing people around. It's not saying, look, you need to do this and do that, but coming in as a servant leader. What do we look for in our elders and pastors here at this church? What are we looking for when there's a need for more elders and pastors? We're looking for men that love the body and serve the body. We're looking for men that are picking up a broom, that are cleaning a bathroom, that are vacuuming a carpet. We don't look first and foremost at degrees. There's nothing wrong with a degree. There's nothing wrong with with seminary. But that's not what makes a pastor. What makes a pastor is a heart for God's people and a willingness to serve God's people. Those are the men that we look for, those servant leaders that are going to serve as an overseer. But that's the function of an elder. That's the exhortation. Make sure you're being a shepherd and you're serving as an overseer. The way they do it is important. In these three statements, there's something not to do, and then there's something it to do. First, not by compulsion, but willingly. This word compulsion, it means constraint or duty. We see this in a lot of different places of life, don't we? Where someone's serving out of constraint or duty. Do you want a doctor that serves out of constraint or duty? I don't know about you, but when I have to go see a doctor, I want him to genuinely care and be concerned about what's going on in my situation. You know, if they're, if they're yawning and looking at their watch and they're disengaged, I'm probably going to find another doctor, right? If I go to the dentist and I'm paying an arm and a leg to see the dentist, I don't want to just feel like another number to the dentist. I don't want to just be duty unto the dentist. It's inspiring when you go to the grocery store and someone's checking you out at the grocery store. Not like checking you out, but checking out your groceries. <laughs> So they're checking you out, they, and they're doing their job. I mean, that's that's a hard job. There's it's a repetitive motion over and over again, and there are those checkers where it's not duty for them, and they're stopping you. Like, how's your day? How how, how you doing? And you go to that store all the time. Like, hey, good good to see you, and those kind of things. You know, the King Supers that we go to, they've got these old school horses that the kids can ride for a penny you know and the checker always makes sure he's like do you kids got a penny because I want to make sure that you can can ride the horse and if we've forgotten a penny he's got a secret stash and he's like here you go see it hasn't become duty for him you know there's love there he's not serving out of compulsion but he's serving willfully how much more so for an elder and a pastor where unfortunately it's a pitfall that can take place for pastors where they're serving out of duty. They're serving out of obligation. It's the same thing. It's another Sunday morning. They've lost their first love for God's people. When they first started off in ministry as a pastor, it was a Saturday night service, and they couldn't wait to stay late and fellowship with people. And it didn't matter if people stayed till 10 or 11. They were going to stay and talk with people but now at some point, they're looking at their watch, and they can't wait to get home. They're more concerned with what's on TV and what game's being played than who's there inside of the house of God. So here you are hanging out late on a Saturday night, and there's the pastor. He's tapping his watch. And Then he flicks the lights, right? That's like the pastor's single, Go home! You know, go home! You know? What's happened? It's become duty for him. You, know, you sit down with the, the pastor and you can tell his mind is somewhere else. He's, he's disengaged. He's, he's lost the motivation for it. And this can happen in the heart of a pastor. Please pray for us as pastors in this, that it would never be out of compulsion but willingly to serve the people of God. Someone should never be a pastor because grandma suggested it or because dad was a pastor Or you love the Lord, so the expectation is that you would be a pastor or an elder. It's something you do willingly because God's touched your heart. And also not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. This word eagerly, it's a ready mind. Again, it's the sense of anticipation that I want to serve God's people, not for any kind of gain for myself. I didn't do this to try to receive anything monetarily back in return. And Peter calls them out here on dishonest gain. Paul also warns about these kinds of elders that are just in it for the money and greed has gripped their heart. And this is in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. It says, "...useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself." So they've fallen into this lie that, well, there's something in it for me with godliness. And godliness is a way to get something for myself. And unfortunately, we've seen this creep inside of the church where elders and pastors are ripping off the people of God. I read an article yesterday that was from this summer, June 25th, 2012, where a pastor and his wife in Houston, Texas, they stole from the church $400,000 and they used the money to, to go gamble in Louisiana. And I know that that's shocking to a lot of people, but unfortunately we're seeing that more and more take place where pastors and elders are putting their hands on things that don't belong to them, and greed has gripped their hearts, and dishonest gain has gripped their hearts. Maybe there's a sense of entitlement that this belongs to me, I'm putting in so much time, and they've forgotten that it is God's work and God's people, and they step over those lines. Here at our church, I think it's important for you to know, we don't talk about finances much here at Rocky Mountain Calvary, but you need to know there is financial accountability. There is an active board of elders here at our church. We also get audited and reviewed by Cape and Krause, which is an independent organization that comes in and looks at our finances in in detail. If you're give to this church and you have questions, man, please set an appointment with Michelle. She oversees the accounting and she'll answer any questions that that you may have and you should never be a part of a church that doesn't have an open door when it comes to the finances there should be transparency uh, when it comes to the the, the finances and I think in the climate that we live in it's wise to make sure that there is accountability when it comes to uh, the finances and so dishonest gain is a pitfall that comes in and can lead the heart of a pastor astray and the other is an abuse of authority in verse three Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flocks. So God doesn't want little Napoleon Dynamites walking around the church, right? Where the pastor's the general and you're gonna listen to him because he's the pastor and he's bossing people around. Jesus didn't lead in this way. Jesus is the ultimate authority and he called things as they were and made tough stances, but he was a servant leader. With only hours left to live, what do we find Jesus doing? washing the feet of the disciples, the position of a servant. Remember, we have foot-washing services sometimes, churches do, and they're nothing like what it would have been for Jesus. Why? Because we wear shoes and we have clean streets. Even if we went barefoot around Colorado Springs, it'd be much better than walking around in sandals in Jerusalem. If you go to a third-world country, the streets are filled with dirt and sewage. These guys were walking around in those kind of conditions, It was a necessity to have your feet washed. And Jesus esteemed them better than himself. He washed their feet with only hours to live. And he says, I've done this as an example for you to be able to follow. If you know this, you'll be blessed if you do this. And this is what the Lord's intending for pastors and elders, that they would be servants, that they would lay down their lives for others and set that example. The example speaks louder than anything else, right? The truth is, If you come here over a period of years, like let's say you even came here 15 years and went home to be with the Lord here, you're not going to remember the messages that I give. There may be one or two that that sticks out, but you're going to remember who I am as a person, you know? And, And we have to remember that as pastors and elders. It's the example that speaks more than anything else, and it's challenging, and it's convicting. The abuse of authority, you've probably heard this, quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And unfortunately, that can take place inside of the church of God. When things get messy inside of the church, so many people get hurt. To illustrate this, yesterday I was making some fruit smoothies. You guys make fruit smoothies? I I like to get creative with fruit smoothies. So I'll get some frozen berries out of the freezer and just all different kinds. Cherries, strawberries, blackberries, raspberries. Just put them all in there. Get some avocados, peanut butter, milk, protein stuff, and just throw it all in there. So I'm getting excited. I've got this filled up pretty good and I'm getting ready to go. And I turn on the blender and then what happens? Something's wrong. The blade's not engaging. So I unscrew the bottom. I'm thinking all the stuff up here is going to hold. But nope, there's a leak out the bottom. And it got real messy. And you know, you probably know at this point, there's a little washer that's there in the blender that if you don't have it put in appropriately, you got leakage that's happening. And I'm thinking this is what happens in the church when pastors and elders go astray. This is what happens. Things get very messy when they lose the priorities of God. So please uh, pray for us in this, that we would grow, that we would be better pastors, better leaders. It's things that we aspire to. Please pray not only for pastors in our church, but pastors throughout the body of Christ. An important thing to note in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears. A pastor is just an under-shepherd. A pastor is not the one that we ultimately look to. Who do we look to? The chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And when he appears, pastors are going to have to give an account to him for how they acted. And then there is a reward. You'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So for that pastor or elder that serves faithfully, there's a crown that the Lord gives and says, Hey, thank you for serving and caring for my church. So that's the exhortation to elders, and now an exhortation to all in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to elders. Young people, high school students, in your 20s, part of your life, part of your makeup and your DNA is you should say, you know what, I am going to listen to those who are older than me that walk with Jesus. I'm going to learn from them and at times even submit to them, come underneath their leadership. The word submit means to yield yourself, to arrange yourself under. Oftentimes I'm telling Amber, my wife, and looking back to when we got married, we had no idea how young we were. We got married when she was 20 and I was 23, you know. We had no clue how young we were. And I look back and I go, wow, we were so incredibly young when when we got married. And there is something that's good about the innocence, like when we're in our early 20s, where we're ignorant, and so we'll try things. And, and so we go out, and we, we try a lot of things, and that's good. But also, there needs to be this realm where we say, I'm going to listen to somebody who's older. I think we've lost that a lot. We've lost respect for those that are older than us. And for most of us, no matter where we are in our journey, we do have elders, You know, we we have people that are older than us, that have walked with Jesus longer than us, and sometimes they're going to call us on things, and they're going to say, hey, look, what you're thinking and what you're doing, hey, you need to run this through scripture, or this really doesn't make sense. It's not a scriptural issue, but it's a common sense issue, and you're going to save yourself a lot of hurt if you do it this way, and they may even share some personal experience maybe you are in your early 20s and you've got someone older and they're coming to you and they're saying you probably don't want to go into that much debt. You know, you don't want to use a credit card in that way. You're going to save yourself a lot of hurt if you listen to that. So put yourself in that place and that's an exhortation from God to submit yourself to other, to elders. It goes on to say, "Yes, all of you be submissive to one another." One of the verses that we seem to be mindful of is this, right? that wives would submit to husbands. And all the husbands are like, yeah, that's right. I'm mindful of that one, you know. I'm praying for my wife in that area that she'll acknowledge my, my leadership. And that's true. There is, and we've talked about it in this study of First Peter, there is this order that God has set up inside of the family, but it doesn't mean that husbands, we never listen to our wives or that we don't live a life of submission. And in this section, there's B statements, the things that we're to do. And the first one is to be submissive to one another. So we're going to have spouses, roommates, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to come to us and share with us God's word and share with us godly wisdom. And we're going to be blessed in those moments if we submit ourselves to them, if we come underneath what they're saying. How many times in your life, full on, have you said, "I am wrong"? <laughs> it's usually like, oh, "I kind of misjudged that one." <laughs> you know, it's a lot gentler way to to put the fact of, "Hey, I am wrong." I mean, think about it. When somebody comes to you that you know loves you, and they say, "Hey, would you think about this?" What's our normal response? <laughs> Defensive, yeah, right. You know, you are the one who's wrong. Don't don't bring it to me, and so. This is wise for all of us to be submissive to one another, to yield to one another. It goes a long way. It leads to the second exhortation. It's to be clothed in humility. It says, and be clothed with humility. Put it on. Clothe yourself with humility. Another B statement. This word clothed would take us to a slave who would have to wear a particular garment that would identify them as a slave. And this is tied to practical acts of service. Jesus expressed humility in the way that he loved and served people. And what God is saying in his word is be clothed with humility by doing the dishes. Being clothed with humility by taking out the trash. Be clothed with humility. You see a need, go, go and meet it. It's a way to express humility to others. It is something that we can put on. So how do we gain an attitude of humility? I think it comes from seeing God for who he is. When we sing the song as a church, holy, 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 and we're thinking about his holiness, the fact that he's never sinned, that he's perfect, that he's the creator of the universe, it puts us in our place, doesn't it? And when we think about our own sin, our own mistakes, our own shortcomings, we always want to live in forgiveness, not condemnation, but we don't want to forget our sin. If we lose sight of all that God has forgiven us, past and present, and he will forgive us in the future, we're going to lack humility. So clothe yourself with humility. Put it on. And then for motivation. why, Why do I be humble? Look with me in the scripture and see what it says. It says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God takes an opposite position to the proud person. Read the scriptures with this lens and note all of the proud people that God humbled. Do we want our name to be included with those lists of men and women who are proud that God humbled? He resists the proud. If there's one person that we don't want opposing us, it's God. God will begin to wrestle with our pride through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins to knock on the door of our heart. Why are you thinking that way? Why are you acting that way? Why are you putting yourself above that person? That's the still small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Please repent of pride, wrestling with my heart. If we don't acknowledge that, then God will humble us. He'll bring us low. But the other is true that God gives grace to the humble grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. I don't know about you, but I desire all the grace that God wants to give. He's the God of grace. He's ready to give things that we don't deserve if we'll humble ourselves. If we'll be submissive to one another, if we serve one another, if we approach God not with this attitude that I deserve something from God, but acknowledging our sin, pouring out our heart to Him, then God brings grace. God can't bless a heart that's going to take credit for what God has done. Then we're touching God's glory. It's that attitude of, well, yeah, I do read the Bible quite a bit. Well, well, yeah, I do. I pray a lot. You should hear me, street witness. <sighs> <sighs> yeah. Right? That's not the heart that God blesses. The heart that God blesses is aware of their sin when people come and say, oh, you must be doing something right. No, if you actually knew me, you'd understand how much I do wrong. And these blessings in my life are because God is gracious, that he gives unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. We're exhorted then to humble ourselves before God's mighty hand. In verse seven, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. This is something that we can do. We can choose to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. How we do it, I think, is revealed in the text by submitting to one another. That shows humility. By doing acts of service to one another that nobody else wants to do. By praying, being in an attitude of prayer. And we see this in the next verse. My prayer life really indicates where my pride is. If I'm not praying, I'm communicating to God, I've got this under control. If I'm not giving God my burdens, the things that I'm wrestling with, what am I telling God? Oh, I've got this one. I've got the resources, I've got the wisdom, I've got the strength, I can handle it. But when I'm giving those burdens over to the Lord, that's humility. That's saying, Lord, I can't do this. I'm giving this to you. I need your help. Would you please carry this for me? That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? We like to be self-sufficient. We like to think that I'm going to go for it. I'm just, this is the 11 o'clock service. We like to think we got our poop in a group. (laughs) You know what I mean? We got, you have to forgive me. I was a youth pastor for a long time, but I can hear the emails coming already. But we like to think we got it all together. We don't want to express to God, I need help as a dad. I need help as a husband. I need help as a spouse. I need help at work. I need help with the Christian life. When was the last time that we really got on our knees before God and expressed our inadequacy before the Lord? Crying out to Him for His grace and His mercy. Prayer is a way to humble ourselves under His mighty hand. And we see that expressed in verse 7. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Does yours say all? Mine says all. Not 70 percent, not 80 percent. Casting all your care upon him. All of it. We tend to like to rate burdens and trials. So this is about a two on the scale. And this is a 10 on the scale. God wants all of it. If it's a two, give it over to God. Don't fall into thinking, I can take care of this. Remember when Joshua went into the Promised Land with Jericho? They're like, "Okay, God, what do you want us to do? We can't handle this. Give us your battle plan." God did a great victory. Unorthodox, march around the walls. When they go into AI, Joshua's like, "I got this one. This is a two. This is a small city. So here's here's some soldiers. Well, the rest of us will stay back." And they got their can kicked. They got it handed to them, and men died. Why? Because he didn't cast that care upon the Lord. He didn't give it to the Lord. Maybe it's something that you can handle in and of your own strength. That's probably more dangerous. The AIs can be more dangerous. Give it over to the Lord. But not only the twos, but also the tens, the really difficult things. Hand it over to God. Put it over into his hands. One of the things that I've noticed about my own faith is there's limits to my faith. If I see a solution, then I tend to trust God. But if I'm having to walk by faith and I don't see a solution, it's hard for me to leave it in the hands of God, which is wrong. It's like Jairus. When his 12-year-old daughter was sick, he comes to Jesus and he says, come to my house and pray for my daughter. He believed that God could heal his daughter as long as his daughter was still living. But his daughter died before Jesus got to the house. And at that point, what does Jairus do? He's like, never mind. You don't need to come to my house because there was a limit to his faith. He didn't believe that God could raise his daughter from the dead. But there's no scale for God, right? It's not like God puts it on a 10 and then God puts it on a two. There's nothing that's difficult for God. There's nothing that's impossible for God. Here's the difficulty. If you're carrying something today is to put it into God's hands and leave it there, right? Because we're good at putting it into God's hands and then we got a backpack and we put it back into our backpack and carry it home with us. And Monday morning comes and we're carrying it. Hand it over to the Lord. I love what's emphasized here in this verse is it says, put it into God's hands because he cares for you. God's ability is not even what's emphasized here. It's that God is crazy, mad, in love with you. He cares for you. He's created you. He knows everything about you. He sent his son to die for your sins and rise again, expressing his love, proving his love. So let those hands that died for you also carry you in the midst of a burden and a trial. But just like humbling ourselves under his mighty hand, we have to give it over to him. And God will wait until we give it to him. He'll he'll say, okay, how you doing, Eric, with carrying that? You tired yet? You wore out yet? You ready to give it to me yet? Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. The next B statement, be sober, be vigilant. Sober is self-controlled. Vigilant is alert. Be self-controlled, be alert, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you know Christ as your savior, you have a real enemy. Satan's got a real clear business strategy, mission statement, vision That he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. He's walking around like a roaring lion, wanting to destroy. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be sober. We have to be self-controlled. We've got to be alert. We can't be asleep spiritually. What if you were headed into combat? And some of you, I know, live that. You serve in our military. You get deployed. If you were going into combat, you'd have to be self-controlled. You'd have to be alert. If you weren't self-controlled and you weren't alert, it would cost lives. Other people's lives, your own life, spiritually, it's the same way. We've got to be self-controlled. We've got to be alert. We've got to understand that there's casualties that come when we're not engaged spiritually. Men, be praying for your wives. Be praying for your kids. Wives, be praying for your husband. Be praying for your church and other churches. We're in a real battle. There is an adversary. It's a battle that can be won, that is won. In verse 9, resist him, steadfast in faith. Part of be sober and be vigilant is to resist Satan. How do we resist Satan? By being steadfast in faith, standing strong in faith. Specifically, faith in God's word. How did Jesus resist Satan in the wilderness? He quoted the word of God. And thankfully, he didn't quote large sections. He didn't quote Psalms 119, which is... Ginormous. It's long. He quoted small sections of scripture, 10, 15 words. Man shall not live by bread alone. He gives us an example and when we're in a spiritual battle, have God's word in your heart. Quote God's word out loud. Stand in faith in God's word. Stand in prayer. The promise is if we continue to stand in faith, stand in prayer, stand in the word of God, Satan has to flee. Satan doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want me to know that. He wants us to think that we're defeated. But if we draw near to God, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. The armor of God in Ephesians 6. Every part of the armor is tied back to an attribute of Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus Christ. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. When you study the armor of God, there's no armor from your backside. Because God doesn't want you to run away from Satan. He doesn't want you to back off. He wants you to stand in the word, stand in prayer, stand in the armor of God, and Satan will flee. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. As we suffer, and these Christians who are receiving this letter, we're suffering. We tend to think that we're the only ones who are going through anything like this. That we're isolated. Satan wants to isolate you. But remember that this is common, that all Christians are going through these challenges and these struggles. So we've seen the exhortation to all, and now we see the actions of God, where God takes action in our lives. In verse 10, I love this. May the God of all grace, this is who he is, grace upon grace. He never comes to an end of grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you've suffered a little while, may seem like a long time, but we're only suffering a little while in this life. This is God's actions. These are verbs that he takes in our lives to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, and to settle you. Church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, believers in Jesus Christ, you will be made perfect by Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You didn't start the work in you. God started the work in you, and he's good at finishing projects. Do you ever start projects that you don't finish? I think we all have some of those, right? Some of you are actually really good project starters, but you're terrible project finishers, right? But God is good at starting projects, and he's good at completing projects. You will be perfected. He's committed to his work of character in your life, here on earth and in heaven. Also, he's going to establish. He's going to establish. He's going to strengthen through his grace to empower us for the Christian life. He's going to settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. He takes action in our lives for his work. Please don't leave God's grace when you get saved. God's grace saves us, but also God's grace transforms us We're asked to take steps of faith of obedience. We're, okay, God, I read this in your word. I want to line up my life with your word. And as we do that, then God gives us the grace to live a supernatural Christian life. There's no way we can live out this life that God's calling us to apart from God's grace. Don't even try it apart from his grace and walking with him. It's God's actions in our lives. So here's the farewell in verse 12. By Sulphanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of which, the true grace of God in which you stand. There it is, it's through the grace of God in which we stand. See who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Believers in Babylon are greeting this church and these churches in Asia Minor as well as Mark. And this is John Mark from the book of Acts who did leave the missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. It's not the final of John Mark's life. He continued on and he becomes a son to Peter. Not a biological son, but a son in the faith. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Make sure you're hospitable to each other, greeting each other with love. In the Middle East, this is still very common to kiss one another on the cheek. Praise the Lord, we're not in the Middle East, so don't even try to kiss me after church on the cheek. (laughs) And I'm not going to be kissing you on the cheek, right? But what do we do? We greet each other with a holy hug, with a holy handshake. Ending the epistle, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. What have we seen in this epistle, 1 Peter? Hope restored. And let's end with where we began. And we began in don't get nervous. I'm not going to go on for a half hour. But I want us to be reminded of the theme of the book, is that we're begotten again to a living hope. Christ is alive, so our hope is alive. What is hope? It's not a wish or a whim, but it's confident expectation of coming good. It's a certain future, that God is good and that he does good. Because Christ is alive, I know that I have eternal life. That's a certain future. I know that in this life, God has a plan and is working things together for good. The believers that received this epistle were being tested with that truth as their lives were being rocked by persecution. Do they still have hope in the midst of the persecution? I believe that God's word has been timely for us as a church fellowship as we've gone through difficulty this summer. Waldo Canyon Fire coming into our community. Testing, that belief in hope. And for some, it's very personal. Is your life still affected by that fire? I have found that this summer has been extremely heartbreaking with the violence that's taken place on the front range. Things that I wouldn't think that I would see in my lifetime, we've lived through as a community. I think that we have to be some spiritually asleep if we haven't been heartbroken by the things that we've seen on the front range. It's challenged me with what in the world's going on with Colorado. What in the world's going on in the Front Range with the kind of violence that we've seen by the hands of young people? We're talking young men committing these horrific acts of violence. It tests us when it comes to hope. Do we still have hope when we see this kind of violence taking place in our community? We look at our culture and we see where our culture is going. And in the midst of an election season, however you voted, do you still have hope? Is your hope in Jesus Christ, not in your citizenship as the United States of America? I stand before you today my hope not being in a country, but my hope being in Jesus Christ. And don't get me wrong, I love America. I love being a citizen of America. There is a political responsibility, but my hope doesn't lie there. My attitude when I wake up Monday morning is not based on my citizenship in the United States. My attitude when I wake up Monday morning is based on Christ is alive. And he's got a certain future. And I know for some of you, it's more personal. It's not the fire in the community. It's not the violence in the community. It's not what's happening nationally. You've faced fiery trial the last two or three months. You're going through it, and every day is a battle for hope. And it's not just hearing a message one time or over the series of two or three months, but church, it's Jesus every day. It's Jesus every day. It's waking up going, Jesus, you're with me. And because you're with me and you love me, I'm laying hold to the fact that you're good and that you're doing good. And somehow, if you've come over the last two or three months, and yet your hope hasn't been restored, that's not the attitude in which you're living because the trial is overwhelming. May the Lord meet you. May you take that step and that choice of faith of saying, even though this betrays my feelings, I'm choosing hope. For the people that received this letter, that watched their wife be killed for Christ that watched their daughter be raped because they're a Christian, that stood there and were burned alive, do you think that they always had the feelings of hope? Or was it a choice of faith? Was it a saying, I know that Christ is alive? So God gives us a certain future, and it's hope restored. But also, as we've studied 1 Peter, there's hope for a changed life. Really what Peter's saying here is, you can hope that your life's going to be different next Sunday. A month from now, if Christ hasn't returned, you can hope that your life is going to be different. Be holy as he's holy. Have a different attitude towards your boss. Treat your kids differently. Be clothed with humility. And what I get so excited about this is it isn't try hard or do better. (laughs) It's the same God that died for you and rose again lives in your hearts, and he can actually change your characteristics. He can actually make me a kinder, gentler man. He can actually make me more strong and courageous and giving and loving. Why? Because he's alive. And he has the power to be able to change a life. So let's stand and pray together that the Lord would do work in our hearts in this area of hope. Father, we thank you that you are the God of hope. And you, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope as we believe and trust in you. I know for some this is really personal because of intense trial and difficulty. And Lord, even as a congregation, I think that we've battled with with hope as it has been a very challenging season. As we see our community hurting in so many ways, we see our country hurting in so many ways. And Jesus, right now, would you just speak to our hearts that you're alive, that you do have a plan, that you are moving? Lord, sometimes we get really discouraged that our lives won't change. Even though we are believers, we think that we're stuck in a pattern of sin that's going to continue on until eternity. And may we look at your word and look at 1 Peter, that you also have the power and the grace to be able to change the characteristics of our lives, our character. And Lord, we don't want to limit you. We don't want to get stuck in justifying our sin and May hope be restored of life change, of being set free from addictions to drugs and pornography and bondage to anger and bitterness and lust and covetousness. You've got such a better life for us to be able to live. Father, we just wait upon you and let's just continue in an attitude of prayer this morning. And if you don't know Christ as your savior, it's not an issue of hope being restored, but it's a matter of having hope for the first time and please hear this, is that we all need a Savior because we're all sinners. I I think if you look at it honestly, you know you've missed the mark. That's what sin means. It means to miss the mark. It is willful rebellion, but it's also where we lie, we steal, we have sinful thoughts, and we're missing God's mark of perfection. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus. What we deserve from God is his justice, but he gives us grace instead because he loves us. Why be saved? Why become a Christian? It's because you want a relationship with a loving God. You want eternal life. You want to be together with him in eternity. If you've never made that decision to receive Christ as your Savior tonight, as or this morning, excuse me, as we close this service, please respond to Christ. Something that I think about that in a sense weighs heavy upon me is people coming to Rocky Mountain Calvary over years and they think, because I came to church, I'm going to heaven. That couldn't be further from the truth. The only thing that saves us is faith in the blood of Jesus, his death and resurrection. You know your heart. You know that you've never said yes to Jesus before and Jesus is tugging at your heart and as we sing this last song and before you head out, with your day, is come pray with somebody on the ministry team. We're not going to sign you up for anything. It's simply about giving you Jesus and let them know, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. And then for believers, if you have lost hope and you're feeling hopeless this morning, come and receive prayer and allow somebody to pray with you. And let's worship together. This last song is really a prayer of asking Christ.